turn to uh, Genesis, the book of Genesis, and uh, I know I've said chapter 15, but we're going to start in chapter 13 this morning, so if you'll turn to Genesis 13, this is our ongoing series on the oaths of God and the plan of God, our journey through the Bible. Last week we looked at the three basic elements of the promises of God to Abraham, which would become uh, ratified in the Abrahamic covenant. They are, the three main ones are descendants to come from him, a nation to come from him, a land for that nation to dwell in. That nation, of course, is, would be Israel. <clears throat> and that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so those are the three great promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's still in force. It is still working right now. The Abrahamic covenant, as we will see um, in, uh, not probably next week, but the week after, is the covenant through which we have access to Jesus Christ. Okay, through Abraham, and Jesus is the child of Abraham, we have we are blessed uh, through Jesus, you see. So it's a very important covenant, and of course it's in uh, somewhat in abeyance right now as God is dealing with the church, but there are promises to the nation of Israel particularly to the remnant of Israel, which we'll look at again later on in this series, that they will become a great nation and they will recognize their Messiah and they will be saved and and, uh, put in their land permanently without any interference. That is yet to be fulfilled, although they're in the land, they're in unbelief, and they have to deal with a lot of interference. So... Uh, There are still promises of the Abrahamic covenant to come. Let us uh, go a little bit further then, and we're now in chapter 13, just briefly anyway. Chapter 13 speaks about Abraham and Lot, and probably you know the story of Abraham and Lot. Uh, They had a lot of herds, and their herdsmen started to quarrel and so on about land, and so they got together and they decided that, uh, hey, you choose one way and I'll choose another way. You take your flocks one way and I'll take my flocks another way. And uh, Abraham said to Lot, look at uh, verse 8, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will take the right. If you go to the right, then I will go to the left. So Abraham is showing humility here. It's Abraham who received the promise of God. And yet he's humbling himself to give Lot the choice. Which way, Lot, do you want to go? Lot didn't make a very smart choice. Lot, we're told in verse 10, lifted his eyes and saw the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go 
towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Not the best choice. But you see, what seemed to Lot to be a good choice was not a wise choice. It was inviting. He was thinking pragmatically. He was thinking, oh, there's water there for my herds and I can grow and prosper here. This all seems good. He wasn't factoring in the fact that it was evil. Sodom and Gomorrah were there. But that is where he was. That's where he turned. And of course, that was not going to turn out well for him later on. Abraham therefore stayed in Canaan, which is more or less modern, the, the, the land of modern Israel. When he had separated, the Lord said to Abram, this is in verse 14, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants, what's the next word? Forever. Forever. So, if you have any problem, and I probably there's nobody here that does, but if you have any problem with uh, Israel and the land, then you have a problem with God's promise. God gave them the land forever. And you're going to see this repeated in uh, throughout the Old Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that just because he gave them the land that they would be in the land forever because, of course, their sins would eventually cause God to drive them out. But nevertheless, in fulfillment of the second aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, the descendants of Abraham the nation of Israel, will be given the land. In fact, in the prophets, we're told that the land is God's land in one text, and then we're told that it's Israel's land in another text, because that covenant bond, you see, draws the two together. It is their land through covenant, and that's what we're going to look at uh, a little bit today, if I can stop waffling in my introduction. Chapter 14 Uh, is the uh, captivity and rescue of Lot, which we're not going to go into, and Abraham's meeting with this mysterious guy, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, yes? Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem. Now called Jerusalem. Okay, it's the same place. And Salem, we get that word, shalom, peace. Uh, from that name, or rather it's it's, it's, uh, derived from the same word. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. That's interesting, isn't it, the two things he brings out. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. That is, Abraham gave a tithe 
to Melchizedek. Now this shows the deference of Abraham. Abraham was the one who was uh, the party to the covenant that God had made from him. God had prospered him. God had uh, made him all of these promises. And yet, Abraham recognizes this figure of Melchizedek as being above him and gave him a tithe. And the author of Hebrews makes a lot of that um, as far as uh, Levi being in the loins of Abraham when he offered that. And therefore, the Levitical priesthood that we will read about under the Mosaic Covenant and so on a little later on in Exodus and so on, uh, that Levitical priesthood is actually um, underneath or not as important as the priesthood of Melchizedek, to whom Abraham showed deference. Abraham wouldn't show deference to Levi, who was his grandson, great-grandson, but did to Melchizedek. You say, well, why are you even saying this? What's the importance of it? The importance is Jesus is now the high priest of the order of Melchizedek according to the book of Hebrews. And we'll look at that further on. Now, Jesus' high priesthood is certainly above the high priesthood of the law of the Mosaic Covenant. Because he represents us in heaven as a high priest, not on an earthly tabernacle or an earthly temple. And if we're represented in heaven, then I think we're good. Okay? He intercedes for us, the Apostle Paul says, constantly. That's good news. That's good news to me. Because I'm constantly falling down. I'm constantly walking in the flesh or, you know, walking in a way that is certainly not fully in obedience with God's will. Um, I need God's grace. I need an intercessor. I need a mediator between me and God. He's too holy for someone like me. And I have one. I have a Melchizedekian high priest in heaven. And his name is Jesus. So that's why I mentioned that. That happens uh, before the chapter that we're going to dive into quickly here. And that is chapter 15. Chapter 15 is all about Abraham's struggle to... Comprehend how on earth was God going to come through on his promises? So let's, uh, let's look through it together. First of all, the first five verses, and let's look at Abraham's quandary. It says, after these things, this is chapter 15 and verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And Abraham's thinking, exceedingly great reward. I'm in a tent here. I don't own any a scrap of this land. I'm a stranger and a sojourner. I don't see much reward. Yes, I've got, you know, flocks and I'm doing pretty well here. So that's good. But as far as the promises of God are concerned, 
of, of the land and a nation coming from me, it's a non-starter right now. Okay? It's not even begun. And so Abraham asked God a question. Verse 2, Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? It wasn't of his family. Then Abraham said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. This is, um, this is an interesting exchange. Here's God showing up and saying, hey, I'm your exceeding great reward, Abram. And Abram's looking around and he's saying, well, what reward? Exceeding great? I haven't even got a child yet. And that's the first thing you promised. Look at it. Look at his words in verse 3. Look, you have given me no offspring. That relates directly to that first promise of God in chapter 12. That he would have a seed and descendants would come from him. Can you see the challenge to Abram's faith? And of course, Abram knows, remember last week, Abram knows that his wife Sarah, as well as she's getting on a little bit, that she's barren. She can't have kids. So, God showing up like this and saying, I'm, yeah, I'm your great reward. Uh, it has, I mean, it's great, of course, it's wonderful, but it causes Abraham to wonder what's going on. It's great, Lord, that you're here. It's great that you're my reward, but I have a little problem with uh, the words that you've promised me, they're not happening. Nothing's happening. And so, the story continues. Verse 4, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one, that is Eliezer, shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Which is the way that Abraham would have taken it in chapter 12. That's God reiterating that, hey, you don't need to try reinterpreting my words here to make them fit. Just believe that I mean what I say. Then he brought him outside. This is God bringing Abraham outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you were able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Your descendants through your own son through Sarah. That's what God meant. No son as yet, no inkling that uh, a son was on the way, but God wanted Abraham to believe what he said there, and Abraham did believe him. We are told by the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, and we're told again in Galatians chapter 3, that that Abraham believed God and God credited it to him, that faith, as righteousness. It was hard for Abraham to believe because to all of the evidence that was before him, Sarah was not about to have a child. 
Okay? I mean, there was no uh, hint of it in the past. She's getting older. She's still barren. Why on earth would we think that it was going to happen in the future? Apart from the promise of God. So sometimes you see, folks, the promise of God, we're going to see this quite a bit, the promise of God goes against the evidences of our eyes, or at least what we make of the evidences. Okay? We think, oh, well, given the circumstances, only this, this, or this could happen. Okay? These are the only possible outcomes. And so we kind of, uh, we, we uh, direct our thoughts and our emotions to meet one of those possible outcomes. Not factoring in God. God is not restricted to our figuring out of a certain situation or problem. To him, it's not a problem. And when you bring God in, you see, those three or four possibilities become endless possibilities. And Abraham believed God. What God said. It wasn't easy for him to do, but he believed God. God is glorified when you trust him. God is glorified when you believe that he means what he says. God is glorified when you don't read the Bible and say, well, I'm not sure how that can be fulfilled. I'm going to make it be fulfilled in another way that I can understand. That's not glorifying God. God is glorified when you believe that God means what he says. That he's a good communicator. If he wanted to say what you think he should have said, he would have said it that way. So Abraham's quandary is settled because he believes the word of God. Often, uh, the perplexity that we find in our minds is settled once we believe God. Just trust God. Oh, well, I don't see how he's going to... doesn't matter. That's not up to you. You're not God. So it's okay for you not to see. It's okay for you not to have all the answers because you're not God. But you can trust that God does have the answers. Yes, that's the thing. So let's look uh, uh, further at Abraham's faith then from verse 6. He believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, this righteousness that God uh, counted to him, this is uh, righteousness, which is uh, being right with God in every single facet of your being. So that there is nothing in you, okay, as far as what God accepts, that God will punish. Now, was Abraham righteous in his personal life and his thought life in the way that I've just described? No. But God counted or reckoned him righteous. Do you see? It's very important we get the difference. Abraham himself was not righteous. Okay? He was a good man. He feared God. He followed God. But... He had some ups and downs, okay? Some hiccups in his life. Later on, 
he was going to lie about his wife to Pharaoh. And then later on, further down, he was going to lie again about his wife. He was going to show a lack of faith in God uh, in getting a child. That's where Ishmael would come from. So Abraham did not have a perfect record, but that's not, thankfully, what God requires. Didn't require it of Abraham and doesn't require it of you. What What God requires is faith in God. And on the basis of your faith in God and faith in what God says, you are made righteous. Now, what is the basis for God's decision to make, to accredit righteousness to you? What's the basis of that? Jesus Christ. Although Jesus Christ wasn't going to show up uh, until another well, 2,000 years nearly, from this time, it was God looking towards the merits of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross that were given or reckoned to Abraham as he trusted God. It was on the basis, therefore, of the merits of Christ that Abraham could be called righteous and be saved. Now, Don't try that yourself, okay? Don't try believing that your offspring will be as the stars in the sky and thinking that God will credit you for being righteous for believing that. That was for Abraham 2,000 years B.C. Jesus hadn't come, hadn't died, hadn't risen from the dead. The message that we must believe, if God's going to count as righteousness, is that message that Jesus died for our sins. Do you understand that? That Jesus died in our place. And we'll say much more about that as we go through, of course. And so, verse 7, we're told, God's saying, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, that pagan city, to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, this is Abraham, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? How shall I know that I will inherit it? That's a good question. It doesn't show a lack of faith. But it shows that he's leaning on the promise of God, but he wants some more information. This is what Bible study is all about. We read something in the Bible and we might say, well, how's how's that going to happen? How's that going to be related to something else? And then we study the Bible and we find other places in the Bible that fill the picture in more, do you see? And this is what we're going to see in uh, as we go through the Bible. We're going to see the picture filled in more and more. More and more information is going to come to us so that the picture, which at first is, uh, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, a splosh here, a squiggle there. It doesn't seem to be anything, but eventually a picture's going to form as we get through the Old Testament in anticipation of the arrival of Jesus. And so Abraham asks, 
how will I know I will inherit it? So he said to him, this is God, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. You say, why three-year-old? I don't know, okay? And one commentator says this, another commentator says that. Probably, but that's the right age for, um, that's when they're in their prime. Some of you that know something about livestock might be able to inform me about that. But uh, I'll just say I don't know. Then he cut all these, uh, sorry, brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, and he did not cut the birds in two. So can you, you see the picture here? He gets these animals, he slays the animals, and he cuts them down the middle. It's very odd. And then he puts one half of an animal this side, one half an animal that side, and then kind of has a, uh, like a pathway of these dead animals that he creates uh, either side, okay? You say, what on earth is that about? Well, there isn't a lot of information from the ancient world about what that was about. Some people uh, try and say that there is information, that this is a well-known rite. There isn't a lot of information about this in the ancient world, but there's enough in the passage to know that something important was about to be ratified, okay? This had to do with the ratification of a covenant, of an oath. In Jeremiah chapter 34, a a very important passage that we'll get to eventually, uh, King Zedekiah and the nobles, uh, they decided that in view of Nebuchadnezzar knocking on the door, they better get right with God. So uh, they made an oath to release the captives, the Jewish slaves, which was, they were supposed to do anyway. And they made an oath by basically duplicating this ceremony that we read of here in Genesis 15. And they walked through the parts of the calves that they'd uh, killed and they'd uh, strewn about in the pathway. And then they went back on it. And in going back on it, God comes to them in judgment. Here, Abraham takes this seriously. So seriously, in fact, that we read that when the vultures came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. He wasn't going to let buzzards, vultures, pick at these carcasses. No, he was going to try to preserve them because God was going to do something. He understood the solemnity of what was about to happen. God had told him to do this. He'd done it. Now he was going to wait for God to act. Verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And he said to Abram, No Certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. 
Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Okay. Let's try and put ourselves in Abraham's position. Abraham has asked, okay, how will I know that I'm going to inherit this land? That's the question, verse 8. Abraham does the preparation work here, and then he goes to sleep. He's put to sleep by God. He's not going to get up and start doing anything else. He's asleep. But God speaks to him in his sleep. Okay? And so in this state, God gives him this bad news. Know for certain that your descendants, you know the one I've just promised to you, your descendants are going into a strange land and they're going to be persecuted. They're going to be afflicted 400 years. That's a long time. And then afterward, I'll bring them back with great possessions. What's that a reference to? Come on. The Exodus, obviously. Israel going down into Egypt and then after 400 years, they're brought out again by God miraculously with the parting of the Red Sea. Okay? The Exodus. So here's a a prophecy of the Exodus um, long before it occurred. But why? Why can't things just be simple? Why can't things just go right? You know, why can't God, who's God after all, I mean, he can do anything he wants, can't he? Why doesn't he just say, okay, so everything's going to be great from now on, and uh, you will have descendants, and we'll, uh, I'll drive all of the people out of the land, and your descendants will just inhabit it, they'll have cities to go into, and Bob's your uncle, everything's going to be fine. Why not that? That's preferable, is it not? But God, you see, God interacts with the world as it is. And with history as it is. And the world's full of bad people. And the world's full of people that make bad decisions. And God is not a God with a big S on his shirt who comes down to rescue every time we mess up. Things occur because of the different happenings, the different decisions uh, that happen in this world. You say, well, does, does that mean that God's not got his hands on the wheel or anything like that? No, it doesn't mean that, but it does mean this. The Bible, from beginning to end, there's something somewhat mysterious about this, but from beginning to end, takes our responsibility to do the right and avoid the wrong seriously. It is our responsibility to do right and to trust God. When we don't, it's our fault. And we have to sometimes take, face the consequences. And when we're dealing with a whole world full of ungodly people doing that, making their own decisions, some of them very powerful, that means God, unless he's going to control everybody's mind, and make them all do something like robots, has to convey the world and the bad decisions and the evil through history to its appointed end. 
Now, I'll have much more to say about this as we go through, okay? But everywhere in the Bible, God, I'm going to use this term, respects the image of God that he's placed in us. There would be no point in in him making us in his image and in his likeness if he countermanded that by just putting thoughts into our heads and making us obey even though it wasn't our own decision. I hope that you can see that. What's the, well, that's, that doesn't image God. That doesn't image God at all. It only images God when we make our own decisions, hopefully under the word of God. But we'll get back to that at another time. Why then this bad news? Well, because God, in his foreknowledge and in, in the way that he's going to, uh, to uh, let history unfold according to his will, this is going to happen. But, verse 16, sorry, verse 15, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Well, that's good news, at least. At least there's no bad news for him. And, yeah, I mean, Abraham was probably wondering, oh, like, my people are going into captivity and they're going to be afflicted. What's he going to say about me? But it was good news for him. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham knew Okay, that he wouldn't inherit the land, that he wouldn't see and possess the land, and that he therefore looked for a city whose builder and creator was God. Okay, this explains why. This verse tells us why Abraham knew that. He knew that even though he'd lived to a good old age in Canaan, that it was the history was going to unfurl after his death. The nation, the descendants would come after he had died. And that that nation actually was going to be forged in Egypt. Sometimes God has things for our lives which um, we wish were different. Sometimes he takes us in, uh, into areas that we wish we didn't have to go into. Sometimes we face experiences and pain and trouble because of those circumstances Not because we have done something wrong, but just because that's the way that history is unfolding. That's the way that God has chosen us to take. And we have to trust God through all of that. And we, like Abraham, have the word of God. We just have more of it to trust Let's see how this pans out. Verse 17, it came to pass when the sun went down, it was dark, that behold, 
there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Now, whether that was two separate things or one, he's trying to describe what he saw, the one single thing, it was some kind of burning thing that, that went and passed between the pieces of the animals, excuse me, sorry, that he'd laid down. So this was obviously not Abraham, this was God passing through the pieces of the animals. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. A covenant with Abram. Why does God make covenants? Tell me. He makes covenants for us. He doesn't need to make covenants. His word is yes, is yes, is no, is no. Okay, he always speaks the truth. He can always be trusted. He doesn't need to make an oath. Why does he do it then? Because he's gracious. Because he wants us to believe him and we have trouble believing him. And so God makes a covenant here with Abraham saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The river of Egypt is uh, probably, it's not probably not the Nile, it's probably the uh, Wadi al-Harish, uh, which is a, a great uh, kind of tributary that, that, that fills up every year. Uh, that's probably what it is. It could be the Nile, but then if it is the Nile, why not just say the Nile? Okay, Because he does mention the Euphrates. But he mentions all of these ites, doesn't he? The Kenites, the Kenazites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim. They're not ites, but they're in there. The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Have you got all of that? He knew who they were and where they dwelt. The fact of the matter is they were in the land. They were in the land. This land that was promised here, look where it ended. It ended at the river Euphrates. That's Iraq. Which means that this land that has been covenanted to the descendants of Abraham, a.k.a. Israel, has never been inhabited by Israel. And the question then comes to us, as the question came to Abram at the beginning of this chapter, can we trust God? Is God, even though he delays, is God going to come through on his promise or not? Or do we have to kind of reinterpret it? That's a very important question, and we need to answer it. And the, uh, there'll be many sermons that will try to answer that sermon, that uh, question. But remember the second question. The first question was, uh, you know, well, I don't have any seed. So we're kind of non-starting here, God. That was answered. Okay, you, from your own body, okay, will have a child. Secondly, how do I know that I'll inherit this land? Here's the covenant promise. And in that covenant promise is the full extent of that land. That's 300,000 square miles, by the way. 300,000 square miles. Israel has never inhabited that much land. And don't look for them to in the 
very near future. When will they inherit this land? In the coming kingdom after Jesus returns. Now, this means this, and this is the, the final thing. Then. This is what we're going to close with. We have to have faith in God, and we have to have faith in God's words. And one of the reasons we have to have faith in God's words is that we walk by faith, not by sight. And Abraham, even though he had these special uh, revelations of God, went many years without seeing the manifestation of God's promises. Sometimes, some of it he didn't see at all. He saw them afar off. And we have been promised that we will be free from sin. We have been promised that we will at some time leave all of our cares permanently behind. All of our worries and all of those things that, that hurt us or con- concern us. Things that we are powerless to do anything about sometimes. We will leave pain behind. We'll leave sorrow behind permanently. We'll have bodies that are glorified like Jesus' resurrected body. These were promised over 2,000 years ago. When's God going to bring it about? That's the question. And the answer is, I don't know. But I do know that God is going to. That's the thing. He's going to. We can trust him. God means what he says. So, when God says to you that you are to cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you, don't try and reinterpret that. Don't try and say, yes, but... Don't say, yeah, but I don't see any evidence of that. Trust it. Believe it. And God, just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, he glorified God in that. That will glorify God. That will please God that you've trusted him, not trusted your sight. And you will see God work in your life. Let's pray. And so, gracious Father, we, because we, uh, we're creatures of time, we don't like waiting. And sometimes um, a long wait makes us doubt or makes us wonder if we've understood you aright. Makes us sometimes want to reinterpret your words. Lord, that's not faith. Faith trusts that you mean what you say. And like Abraham, even though there were promises that you made to him that he didn't see come true in his time, Lord, this doesn't do anything to the veracity of those promises. All the things that you covenanted with Abraham to do, you will do, and Abraham will see it. He will see that you are a God of covenants. 
You are a God of oaths, and those oaths will surely come to pass. Help us to trust you in this, as in everything. In Jesus' name, amen.